you're listening to The Lit Review, a podcast where organizers interview organizers about books. In this moment of urgency, mass political education is key. We recognize that political study is not always accessible for a variety of reasons. Our goal with The Lit Review is to be a resource that brings out key information from relevant books to the masses. Think SparkNotes in podcast form. I'm one of your hosts, Paige May, and thank you for listening to The Lit Review. Are you recording? Yep. Okay, cool. All right, so welcome to another episode of The Lit Review. I'm one of your hosts, Monica Trinidad, and I'm here with Paige May, and we'll be chatting with the brilliant Benji Hart. So Benji, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, um, who you are, what you do, and why? Um, I am a writer and artist uh, living in Chicago. Um, thank you all so much for having me. I'm really, really excited to be here. I'm also a blogger at Radical Faggot, and uh, currently in the city, I'm trying to support a lot of the amazing efforts that are happening all around the city in uh, response to the political moment that we're in. Um, but I'm especially uh, working closely right now with the BTGNC Collective, the Black Trans Woo-hoo. and Gender Nonconforming Collective of Chicago, and and trying to get a, a stronger base of Black uh, TGNC folks in conversation with each other and organizing in Chicago. Beautiful. Thank you. And so today we're talking with Benji about the book Transgender History by Susan Stryker. Can you tell us more about why you picked this book, what it's about, and anything you can share with us about the author? I originally read this book because I was working with some friends of mine on creating a queer and trans resistance to policing timeline. Um, And we were looking for history points on that timeline. And I originally thought I was just gonna kind of scour this book um, with my friends to pull out a couple uh, salient points and ended up realizing that there was so much trans history in direct resistance to uh, the police and the prison system that I did not know about and had never learned about. Um, So this was a really exciting book for me because even though I actually think it is pretty accessible, um, it's not very theory heavy. It's much more about sort of times and dates and uh, specific moments in trans history. It's so packed with really dense, really important information uh, that is actually really hard to find in other places. So it's really invaluable for that reason. It covers uh, trans history in the US um, for about the last half a century. Um, so sort of from the, the 40s and 50s onward for the most part. Uh, the most part. Um, so it, it's US focused and also sort of current or modern history focused. So um, it leaves out, needless to say, lots of trans history mm-hmm. across the planet and throughout history, but it's very cognizant of that and uh, focuses on sort of the rise of militant resistance um, and sort of institutionalized trans identities, which has, which we know has kind of uh, quickly escalated in the last few decades. And was, mm-hmm. there was not much of that happening um, in this country. Uh, to the same scale before that. So that's really what she's documenting um, in this book. Susan Stryker is a white trans woman uh, historian and academic. She's very mindful in this book about covering black and brown uh, trans resistance, which you really, in order to cover trans history accurately, Mm -hmm. you have to. Mm -hmm. Um, But she does a good job of it. But that being said, (laughs) there is a lot of uh, focus on white trans history or sort of white trans uh, historical figures. So I really wanted to focus today on sort of black and brown 
resistance and black and brown struggle as it's documented in this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I want to jump right into sort of this queer and trans resistance to police violence historically, right? Um, and Stryker talks about the Compton Cafeteria Riots um, that happened in 1966 in the Tenderloin um, in San Francisco. And she re- gives a really good explanation of the incident, you know, and I only was familiar of the with the incident because of uh, the Celebrate People's History poster series, mm-hmm. that beautiful poster series, and that and that's how I learned about it, right? Um, but I know that that history has been erased in so many different ways. Um, so can you just talk a little bit more about that incident, um, why you think, in your opinion, it was erased from history, and then also um, just like how it relates to um, how it related in that moment to the movement against police violence and how it sort of informs our work today around challenging police violence? Absolutely. It's mm-hmm. a very rich question, so I'll try and be concise. I know, sorry. I, I am all about the rich, thick questions of like, here's four questions and go. Um, Compton's Cafeteria Riot, what's fascinating is like Stonewall, which comes after uh, Compton's Cafeteria, but also um, like Cooper's Donuts, which actually predates Compton's mm-hmm. Cafeteria, and Dewey's, uh, which is another similar type of instance that happens in Philadelphia, also slightly before Compton's Cafeteria, it almost always, these um, clashes with the police almost always involve sex workers um, and homeless youth Mm. um, who are queer and or trans. And so Compton's Cafeteria was an all night um, restaurant sort of um, eatery that um, folks who were out at night, either because they were partying or because they were working, doing sex work, working at the clubs or just cause that's where they hung out because they didn't have anywhere else to stay. Um, it was just a, a safe space and a hangout for homeless youth and trans sex workers in particular, which meant that it was also a um, place that police knew they could go and easily pick people up um, because they it was easy to catch folks who were in the midst of um, like looking for clients or um, linking up with clients or who had drugs on them or, you know, folks who have all their belongings with them because they don't have anywhere else to keep Mm -hmm. them. So it's just an easy place to go and pick somebody up. Um, So for that reason, it was under heavy police surveillance. And in the case of Compton's Cafeteria, um, the owners also did not like the reputation that they had and were always looking for ways to um, kick youth out, kick uh, trans women out, kick sex workers out. So on the night of Compton's Cafeteria riot, uh, the date that we commemorate, um, there was actually a group of uh, young people at a table being loud, acting up, making noise, um, who hadn't bought anything. And so the owners told them they needed to buy something or leave, and they refused. The owners called the police. Um, the police came in, tried to forcibly remove folks, and they um, responded by fighting back, throwing things at them. The entire bar, or the entire restaurant rather, spilled out um, into the street and were actually able to get the police to leave mm. um, without anyone being arrested, mm. I believe. And this has a lot to teach us about A, trans, the, the long, long history of trans resistance to policing, but also about what organizing against p- police resistance can look like, does look like, in ways that I think are not always recognized. Mm. One reason we don't, uh, one important reason we don't remember this date um, is that uh, the police records of it are actually struck. Mm -hmm. Um, The police records of it actually do not exist, suspiciously. And I think that 
is so telling um, because we know the records that we have from the police, the records that we have from the court system are not accurate in so many ways and that that's on purpose. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's very telling that police did not want a record of this shameful incident where San Francisco police officers were successfully fought off by sex workers and by trans people because that should not ever happen mm -hmm. and especially not from those people mm -hmm. who are so demonized and seen as so weak in our society and having them fight off police is a big deal yeah and also the it says that the the san francisco daily newspapers didn't cover this either and i think that that's such a uh, a moment or a, a strong uh, example of how mainstream media and police go hand in hand in a lot of ways, especially when you hear about police shootings now, you, it, it, mainstream media covers them according to police narrative, right? So if police, you know, totally didn't report any of this or erased it, then it makes sense why, you know, the news didn't cover it either. Absolutely. So I think that's one reason. Mm -hmm. I think the other reason is Compton's kind of occupies a interesting moment in this sort of history of trans resistance but also of the institutionalization of um trans identities because it, it's different from uh cooper's donuts for example in that it was not just an isolated incident there was organizing um that resulted uh in the wake of um compton's cafeteria riot but it, not nearly to the degree that organizing happened in the wake of Stonewall. Mm -hmm. And we really commemorate Stonewall because we it, we think of it as the birth of the gay liberation movement or sort of the institutionalizing of the LGBTQ mm -hmm. uh, identity movement sort of political platform. Um, and that level of organizing and of institutionalization did not happen as a result of Compton's Cafeteria, but at the same time, um, very much community organizing on a local level did. Mm -hmm. And it was a huge shift um, in terms of the visibility and uh, sort of the structural uh, changes in the city of San Francisco to support, see, and accommodate trans people. So it, it had a much bigger institutional impact than the uh, police riots that preceded it, mm -hmm. um, but not to the same degree as Stonewall. So I, I'm curious to hear you talk more about the general history that is in the book. And, and um, yeah, I have more questions about that. But before we get into that deeper history, I think it's important that we hold space to talk through key terms. And if you don't mind, Absolutely. what are the, the important words that you think you're using that you want to make sure you're, you're clear on what you mean when you're saying them? Mm -hmm. um, and I can lay out a couple that I've heard, but I also just want to, whatever you think is important to define. Thank you so much for that. I really appreciate that. Definitely let me know if there's some I should define. I think the two I want to make sure I define are queer and trans. That's what I had written down. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> okay, cute. Um, queer and trans are uh, different but linked ideas and identities. Queer... I should mention that both of them come from academia. Both mm -hmm. of them come um, out of queer theory, which really means sort of academic ideas and movement inside of the university setting, mm -hmm. yeah. um, which I think is a limitation of those terms because we know that there's so much organizing that has happened that has nothing to do with the university and nothing to do with academia. So I want to say that up front, but they are two terms that I like. Um, and queer refers to any gender or sexual identity that is weird, is queer, is outside of the norm. 
of what our society expects. So that's an umbrella term that covers all gender, sexual, romantic, uh, all kinds of relationships and ways of relating to one's sexuality and one gen and one's gender that go against the sort of heterosexual, monogamist um, norm of what sexual um, and gender identity should be. Trans is a more specific term that falls under queer, but which refers specifically to gender identity. And it means anyone whose gender identity that they feel for themselves, that they identify with for themselves, does not match um, the gender identity that they have been assigned by our society. So we all have two gender identities. Um, the one that's given to us by, by doctors, by the medical industry, by our families, by our schools, by sort of the institutions that we navigate every day. Um, and then we have our own identity that we see ourselves as, want to wanna be called by, want to be recognized as, and want to live our lives as. A cisgender person, because we may use that term later, um, is a person whose uh, identity that's been given to them by society matches the way they feel them, themselves. You're born, the doctor says you're a boy, and you're like, okay, that works for me, I'm a boy. That's being cisgender. A trans person is any person whose gender identity does not match um, the the gender that's mm -hmm. been given to them. So the doctor says you're a girl and you say, no, I think I'm a boy or no, I don't think I have a gender or no, I think I have elements of a boy and a girl or no, I, sometimes I feel like a boy but other times I feel like something else. Mm -hmm. Those are all examples of a trans identity depending on how that person wants to identify themselves. Um, so but it's, it's it means- it's more about your relationship to a norm and not about what you are. There's not like a specific definition of this is what it means to be queer. This is what it means to be trans. It's Absolutely. your relationship to what is established as normal. Absolutely. And I'm sure we'll get to it later, but I think the real power in these identities is they start to really break up what any norm is mm -hmm. and if any norm actually exists. And I think that's why trans identities in particular are so powerful because right. just uh, folks just by identifying as who they are and determining for themselves what their gender is mm -hmm. force all of us to ask really complicated ideas about what gender is in mm -hmm. the first place. Mm -hmm. Well, then that just brings me to my next question, which is that Stryker often mentions this historical redefinition of, of transgender. And can you just elaborate on more of what she's talking about when she says that? It's a really complicated thing. Um, and she does a good job of kind of weaving that in uh -huh. throughout the book. But that we could write an encyclopedia mm -hmm. aside from this book okay. just on that. Uh -huh. But I would say to kind of put it in the shortest, the most succinct way that I can, uh -huh. I would say, again, acknowledging the limits of these terms, that these terms come out of academia, uh -huh. which means they also come out of a, a white colonial framework. That's, I think that's why we are always running into limits with these terms and also why the terms have changed so much over time is because A, these ideas aren't fixed. Um, these ideas about gender and but also about challenging gender are, are constantly evolving and changing. But I think more significantly and more deeper than that, these identities predate the academy mm -hmm. and these identities predate colonialism and um, all these structures that we're sort of trying to navigate and name these things in now, our identities actually predate them and, and people's ways of living and experiencing and expressing their genders 
exist before the idea of gender even exists. So um, I think we're, we're always running into issues with how do we describe ourselves, how do we describe each other, because we're working in these, these uh, structures and these frameworks that mm -hmm. don't match our identities. And there, there are these terms that are considered offensive now that were for a long time the only terms that people had, like transsexual or transvestite, terms that we now do not use mm -hmm. um, because they're inaccurate. Mm -hmm. But for a long time, like a lot of the folks that we'll talk about in this book historically, that's the way they identified because they were doing this radical work yeah. before an academic had invented mm -hmm. the term transgender. Mm -hmm. And so they didn't have another way to describe their identity, even though they were doing these really radical things with their gender and um, this really radical organizing in, within their communities. Um, so I think the terms are complicated and of course I think we need to keep up to date because we want to be referring to each other and referring to um, especially the folks that are organizing in the ways that they want to be referred to as. And so trans, transgender is the, the current term that we're using. But I also think it's real to acknowledge that term will probably change. And that's because we're always navigating like what it means to be who we are in a society that doesn't actually have a name for us. And so I think it's like amazing for people to be sort of coming up with these mm -hmm. terms and, and ways to identify themselves. But I also think it's important to acknowledge that before there was the term trans, there were trans people. Before there was gender, people were still doing radical things and, and expressing themselves and their sexuality and exploring their bodies and their ways of presenting in really beautiful, radical ways. And especially for trans people of color, I think that's what's kind of so spiritual about that identity is because we're actually doing things that our ancestors did for thousands of years mm -hmm. and before we were colonized and before we were sort of fit into these structures that we're now trying to navigate. Um, and I think being trans in a lot of ways can be seen as going back to our ancestral expressions of gender and of self mm. um, that predate these really limited structures that come to us through colonialism. Mm -hmm. So can you talk more about the the key moments in history that are talked through in this book or what you what stuck out to you? Anything in particular? Any so I, I guess so I'm I'm interested if you can there's a whole section of the book is devoted to just history. Mm -hmm. And it covers, I think you had said the last fifty plus years. And we've already talked about one specific instance, but in that you're already relating it to multiple other events that are going on. So as you're reading this history, are there sort of key moments or eras or things that you think are particularly important to lift up about the, the history that we're talking about in this book? Mm -hmm. I don't remember off the top of my head how she refers to kind of the, the different uh, periods or eras that she kind of um, runs through in the book. But I think the, the moment sort of from Cooper's Donuts, Cooper's Donuts kind of to Stonewall, I kind of felt like or would describe as sort of an era of militancy mm -hmm. um, and an era of militant response to state suppression. And I think that is, for me, the most significant period to examine because, of course, there is incredible trans activism and organizing happening before that and after it. But that moment of upheaval, which we know sort of coincided with upheaval in a lot of different communities, the 50s and 60s, is a moment where there's this also great coming together of a whole host of queer identities 
that includes trans people um, and is in many ways led by trans people, that even though it results in a lot of um, incredible leaps and gains for queer and trans communities in its wake also results in this really bifurcation of cisgender gay and lesbian people apart from and away from um, trans and gender nonconforming people. So I think, I think there's a lot for us to glean from that now because I think we're living in a similar moment of social upheaval where there are a lot of communities in struggle, which also means that there are a lot of communities coming together in ways that they haven't previously. But I think sort of trans history and trans struggles show us that those moments can be can be fleeting. Um, and just because people come together in one political moment doesn't mean they stay together, um, especially when caveats are offered to specific communities and specific identities to kind of draw them out of militancy um, and draw them away from radical struggles, which is a lot of what happened to cisgender gay and lesbian people in the wake of Stonewall. So I think that's something I've been thinking a lot about um, sort of revisiting that history is we're doing a lot of work in our communities right now to bring identities together and to bring communities in struggle together. And I'm referring not just to queer and trans people, but Muslim people, immigrant and undocumented people, poor and working class people. There's really incredible alliances being built across um, oppressed communities in this current political moment. And I think that's extremely beautiful and optimism inducing <laughs> but i also think we we need to be thinking in our organizing about what is making that something long term look like and what is actually making a commitment to each other and to our communities look like as opposed to sort of coming together under certain campaigns or coming together um because there's been a bill that got passed that targets us in a sweeping way that it's beautiful when we come together in those moments but what does it look like to actually turn that into a commitment that can outlive sort of that moment of of escalation or of extreme danger or extreme violence that then when hopefully that moment has passed we're still bonded mm -hmm. and we're still fighting for each other and it's not just like oh well mm -hmm. trump's not president anymore so <laughs> trans people don't need to be included in our spaces anymore mm -hmm. or you know exactly mm -hmm. how do how do we actually make these fleeting moments of working together and fighting together actual bonds and actual cross community commitments that survive sort of the intensity of this moment. So does the book offer any next steps to help answer that question or are there other things that you've read or learned about that help that advise us in this moment to actually create those bonds that you're saying we need? I think because the book is much more historically focused than uh it is on sort of creating a political analysis. I don't know that it expressly offers, you know, like here's what we need to do, because mm -hmm. um, that's not really its focus. It's really about mm -hmm. sort of providing this outline of transgender history. Yeah. But I do think there are very key moments in that history that can start at least making us think about what does long-term organizing as opposed to sort of in-the-moment organizing mm -hmm. look like. And I think actually a good example of that is to return to uh, Compton's Cafeteria because one of the things that I thought was so interesting about um, that, uh, that moment that she does a really good job of outlining was how much um, community organizing had been happening before um, and around that moment before the actual clash um, with the police officers. Um, and I think that is a really important lesson for all of us because 
I think we, I think as organizers, we think a lot about, or at least speaking for myself, I think a lot about building militancy. Um, and what does it look like to sort of foster and create an ethic of militancy? What do you mean by militancy? And by militancy, I mean a desire to actually fight back, mm -hmm. a desire to actually combat the systems that are harming you and not just uh, sort of work within those systems to try and fight back against them, but actually jump outside of them and work on breaking them down, work on actually, um, work on actually destroying the structures that are trying to kill you. Mm -hmm. And I think clashing with police is an example of that. And uh, what Susan Stryker does a really good job of outlining is that there was actually, the, um, it's called uh, the first uh, trans organization in US history, and it was called Vanguard. And Vanguard was using Compton's Cafeteria as its headquarters at the time mm -hmm. of the riot. Um, and so that was a, a queer organization that was uh, working on organizing and providing resources for uh, street youth and sex workers in the Tenderloin neighborhood. It had a, a publication that it put out featuring art and writing. And I think what I think what I learned from sort of understanding Compton's Cafeteria as a, a community space before the riot happened is that we actually build militancy and build sort of strong community a uh, strong uh, organizing ethic by building strong communities mm -hmm. and that if community building isn't happening in addition to campaigns or actions or you know sort of what we tend to think of organizing mm -hmm. or activism as then once the action is over there's nothing left there there's nothing that is built beneath it to keep sort of fomenting more organizing and, and more conversation. So I think there's a lot to be learned about actual community building mm -hmm. as something that is actually what sets the stage for militancy instead of the other way around. Um, that we actually, by building strong bonds with each other, loving each other, loving our neighborhoods, loving mm -hmm. um, the spaces that we create together, that's what makes us fight, is our, is our mm -hmm. love for each other and our love for the places that we come from. Um, and, I, and I think Compton's Cafeteria is also a really complicated example of that because um, most of those folks were homeless. Mm -hmm. Most of those folks actually did not live in that neighborhood, mm -hmm. but they had still created a, a fierce relationship to it mm -hmm. by, by claiming that space for themselves, mm -hmm. um, which is what trans people all over the country and all over the world do every day um, because trans homelessness is such an intense um, phenomenon. And I think neighborhood organizing even we don't think about what does neighborhood organizing look like when people are homeless mm -hmm. but that's a real thing and and homeless people trans and queer people specifically are doing that all the time creating community for themselves without resources mm -hmm. creating space for themselves without housing and without um you know physical or or material wealth mm -hmm. um and that is like some of the most militant things that trans people I think have to offer this movement mm -hmm. um, is showing us what does community building look like without any resources. Um, and, and there are real answers to that question. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that I think uh, is, it was fascinating to me that I also think teaches us about, um, again, creating long-term strategies for movement building is the the bifurcation or the split that happens between cisgender gays and lesbians and trans people in the wake of Stonewall. Um, and one of the things in the book that fascinated me the most was that there, 
uh, there there came to be this idea that she talks about very explicitly of sort of gays and lesbians seeing trans people as sort of unsophisticated or, or actually not radical enough in their politics. Oh. Um, and that that had so much to do um, with cisgender people not understanding the dire needs that trans people had and that they were organizing around. Oh. Um, and so, for example, um, homosexuality being taken off the list of mental disorders mm -hmm. was this huge um, watershed moment for the cisgender gay and lesbian movement um, and sort of creating mainstream acceptance for them. But gender dysphoria, um, which means sort of like being confused or having disillusions about your gender, was still on that list. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot, This is there's actually a long history of this, of, of trans people, even within the trans community, arguing about whether it should be on that list or not. Um, and, and trans people arguing about whether they want to be considered disabled or not, which is a whole other um, complicated conversation. Mm -hmm. But that was a perfect moment where gay and lesbian people actually were, were telling trans people that they weren't radical enough um, because they weren't fighting to, to get their mm -hmm. identity removed from that list. When for so many trans people, it was the fact that their identity wasn't included on that list that gave them access to resources. Mm -hmm. um, and people were not thinking about, well, theoretically, what would be, be the most symbolic victory for us. They were like, if this is what it takes for me to get housing, mm -hmm. or if this is what it takes for me to get the affirming surgeries that I want, or you know, whatever it is, then you can call me whatever you want to call me, or you can put me on whatever mm -hmm. list you want to put me on. Mm -hmm. But for me, it's about getting the resources that I want, which I know I will not get any other way. Um, and that that was something that cisgender organizers could not understand um, and were actually like very um, snobby to trans people about and were like, you know, y'all don't get it or y'all, if y'all were real radicals, you wouldn't be trying to work within these systems, you'd be trying to get out of them and, you know, and I think we still do that. We still, we still think very much that way um, in a lot of our organizing now. Um, I know I catch myself all the time thinking about like, well, it, that's not radical enough or, you know, this person's frameworks aren't right because they're not fighting for this thing in the way that I would. Um, and I think not only is it like not helpful for us to be sort of judging each other as people in struggle about who's the most radical or who has the best politics, I think there's also a theme there that not only are we shutting people out and shutting people down when we think that way and when we organize that way, but often we're shutting out and shutting down the most radical people. Mm -hmm. That it's often the folks who are sort of uh, using their frameworks or using their uh, academic training or whatever their privilege is yeah. to kind of decide who's the most radical are often the ones who don't get it yeah. and are often the ones who are actually not understanding the real struggles um, that poor and working class people are dealing with, that trans people are dealing with, that black people are dealing with, that undocumented people are dealing with and don't understand that you actually don't need an academic background or a lot of big words to know that you're doing something really radical and that the most radical work happens because people are trying to survive, not because they have a framework or because they have a political value, but because they're doing what they need to do to survive. And I think that's something else we need to learn how to center mm -hmm. is, is honoring what people do to survive instead of judging it based on radical value um, and I actually think there's something really real to that for us to learn from now mm -hmm. in terms of how are we creating long-term movements that um, center the people that need to be centered but are also centering the most radical work and I think centering the most radical work actually means centering 
the most marginalized folks. Mm. And the most marginalized folks rarely have academic training. Right. And the mm -hmm. most marginalized folks rarely have you know, a specific framework that their work is grounded in. They're just trying to figure out what they need to do mm -hmm. to deal with the barrage that's coming at them. Yeah. Um, and I think asking ourselves, how are those voices being centered? How is the, the work that they're doing, which may not look like the work mm -hmm. that we're doing, being centered? Mm -hmm. um, because I think there's actually a lot to dig into there in terms of understanding how, how do these bonds actually survive and, and how are we actually learning from the most oppressed people in our community instead of directing them under our ideas of what radical organizing looks like. Mm, damn. Who are some, and I, like off the uh, recording, you had mentioned that there are other black trans historians that we should be looking to as well. Um, and uh, yeah, so can you just sort of go into that a little bit? Um, what are your thoughts? on the Women's March, uh, if you want to, you don't have to. Um, but also, yeah, just like who should we actually be looking to? Who should we be learning from right now? Who? Well, I think to, to ground us in transgender history, mm -hmm. um, it, it was also really fascinating um, reading this book, learning how old these arguments are about who is and isn't a woman mm -hmm. are, that those are not new arguments at all. Mitch mm -hmm. Fest. Ooh. Ugh. <laughs> so, um, but but yeah, looking at second wave feminism and how deeply transphobic um, mm -hmm. a lot of the the sort of heralded leaders of the of the second wave movement were is really intense. Um, and that's of course not to say that there weren't really amazing um, trans positive folks in the second wave movement. We don't want to erase those folks. Um, but this history of wanting to keep trans women out of feminist spaces um, is really old. Mm -hmm. And that shocked me. I did not know that before reading this book. Um, I think the Women's March is a complicated thing that we can talk about, um, but I think it goes deeper and wider than the, the singular event of the mm -hmm. Women's March. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so much of the violence that, uh, so much of the violence that trans people experience in our uh, current society is this idea of sort of infiltration or of deception. Um, and there's this really intensely held belief about trans people um, that they are deceiving the people around them um, by being gender subversive. And frankly, we see that on TV shows all the time. Trans people, there are, there are these fleeting moments of trans people on cop shows and on judge shows, and they're always tricking someone. They're always, they're always subverting their gender as a way of getting past something or getting under something or of misleading somebody as opposed to that's just who they are and that's mm -hmm. just how they live their lives. And other people have a hard problem, you know, a hard time dealing with that. Um, and I think this, that belief is definitely rooted in transphobia and definitely rooted in the idea that being trans isn't a real thing. But it also expresses itself in these ways that don't understand trans people as people needing access to the same resources and the same safety that other people have. Um, and I think that's the biggest thing that's missing from a lot of um, feminist movements right now is, is this idea that trans people are trying to gain access to something, are trying to like sneak in and infiltrate, as opposed to trans women need the same support, protection, and community as women that all other women need, mm -hmm. um, and that that shouldn't be a, a, a surprising or noteworthy thing. 
Um, and that's why I know there's a lot of sort of uh, com- conversation on social media happening right now about the recent comments that... Um, oh, the, the writer, Chiamanda. Thank you. Chiamanda. Chiamanda made. Um, and I, I, think that, I think it's important to like give a nod to that conversation um, because it's a kind of going back to uh, the defining of terms that mm-hmm. we did at um, the beginning of the podcast. The conversation shows that we don't actually understand as a movement and, and sort of in our current political moment that A, trans people have always existed, but that B, the idea of womanhood that we're forcing onto trans people is a colonial idea. Mm. That this idea of, of women being defined in this very specific way by genitalia, by um, physical characteristics, mm-hmm. by the way you were identified at birth, by you know all the ways that we think this is what a, a quote unquote real woman is. All of those ideas come to us from the medical industrial complex, come to us from the academy, come to us from Christianity, come to us from colonialism, and are not native to our histories as indigenous people, black people, brown people, what have you. So it's disappointing to see black people, it's disappointing to see people of color engaging in that kind of thinking Mm -hmm. because you actually see in this book that comes directly out of white feminism, not black feminism. It comes directly out of colonial um, approaches to gender and not out of our radical histories of really complex ways of understanding and expressing gender that again, predate colonialism. so trans people demanding access to feminist spaces, trans people demanding access to women's spaces isn't only like, duh, of course they should have access to those spaces. Like it isn't just the fact that um, they have a right to demand access to those spaces. It's also that by demanding access, they are working to decolonize those spaces. And we need to remember that the presence of trans people decolonizes. Mm-hmm. And that's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and these spaces should be feeling blessed to have trans people with, within them instead of trying to keep them out. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to remember which legacies tell us we need to keep trans people out and which legacies welcome trans people because the legacies we want to be in line with are the ones that welcome trans people. I'm trying to not snap. Can you speak to, to that decolonization work that's being done and how that relates to, I don't know if it's a post-gender world or I, as, as I was skimming through the book, I was really struck near the end. Uh, she's talking about um, Haraway's The Cyborg Manifesto, which I still haven't read, but I see it referenced all the time. And specifically talking about the smashing of not just gender binaries, but also the divides between human and machine and human and animal. And is that too theoretically? I, I, it feels somewhat at odds with everything we've been saying, but I, there is something about the fact that it is an effort of decolonization that I think connects to this larger liberation project and helps us to imagine a world that might be post- I don't know, boundaries, borders mm. of all different kinds. Can you talk about that at all? If if that's true, if I'm reading too much into it, tell me that. No, I think you're reading into I think you're not reading too much into <laughs> it. Um, and I think it's a great and complicated question. And actually at BTGNC, we've been having a lot of these conversations because we're working right now on sort of creating our 
our, our mission and our values. Um, and we had a long conversation the other day because in, in a, one part of sort of our own uh, principles, we had said that we, uh, we had collectively stated that we wanted to smash the gender binary and that that was one of our values. And we had a really long conversation about it because folks pointed out, well, but a lot of trans people identify within mm -hmm. the gender binary and we don't want people who identify as trans women to feel like they're being judged for identifying with the gender binary mm -hmm. or people who identify as trans men feeling like, well, they're not welcome in our space if, if they feel like the gender binary speaks to them or works to them. Um, and we had to kind of play with that language to talk about, you know, what are the ways that we want to challenge these structures without shaming people who identify with them or who have found a way to work with them and live within them. And I think that's a that's an ongoing question in all of our movements, frankly. But I do think that, again, what makes trans people so special in this very kind of inherently political way and inherently spiritual way, I would say, is that just by existing, folks just just by asserting that their gender identity they're, they're very, this very core part of themselves is different than what the society is telling them it has to be, forces all of us to ask these complicated questions about, well, then what is that structure in the first place? Mm -hmm. If it's something that can actually just be thrown off, or if you can actually just say for yourself, no, that doesn't work for me, I'm gonna do something else. What does that teach us about these structures that we have all thought of as being inescapable and fixed and impossible to change or get around? Um, and, and for me, I think that's the takeaway instead of thinking, well, you can only be radical if you're non-binary or you can only be, uh, you're only challenging gender if you're doing it in this way or if you present in this way or identify this way. I think there's a deeper message there that you can, you can actually be working within a structure and still challenging it. Mm -hmm. You can actually be. Uh, figuring out how to navigate and again how to survive with the cards that have been given to you or, or with the uh, the institutions that you're dependent on and still be challenging those institutions and that that can look like a wide range of things and I I I don't know if I want a post-gender society I've heard a lot of trans people say that they don't mm -hmm. that it's not that we need to erase gender it's that we need to explode it. Mm -hmm. It's that we need um, to recognize that there's all these incredibly beautiful, complicated, uh, nuanced ways of being in the world. And it's not that we need to erase them. It's that we need to validate them all. Mm -hmm. And that that's actually another way of undoing these structures. Mm -hmm. That I think when we think about like smashing the gender binary, we think about erasing gender mm -hmm. as opposed to kind of multiplying it. Right. Mm -hmm. The question isn't sort of like, how are you identifying yourself? And it's more so, sort of, um, how are we exploding these structures? Or how are we, um, how are we by being who we are, subverting these structures in ways that ultimately will make them fall apart? Because that is the goal. But that falling apart doesn't mean there isn't anything left mm -hmm. in its wake. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think that's something that even within the trans community is, is a really complicated question. Mm -hmm. Do we do away with this structure completely? Do we complicate it? Do we um, hold up some parts of it and let go of other parts? And I think even just by having those conversations, we are acknowledging that these things are malleable yeah. and that 
we get to decide which parts of them work for us and which parts don't. And if a part works for you, that shouldn't be invalidating or that shouldn't mean that you're a traitor to the gender struggle. It's, it's a deeper question about us actually making the decisions for ourselves about what we want to keep and what we don't, what works for us and what doesn't. And that structure itself is not a bad thing. It's, it's what is that structure designed to do? Right. And is that structure helping you get and helping your people get to where you want to be or not? So we're just at time. Okay. Uh, but before we cut it off, um, I just had one more question. Um, and just to turn it back to the Women's March a little bit, I recently organized this Twitter chat um, on the National Day of Action to protect and, and celebrate black trans women and, and trans women of color. Um, and we had this Twitter chat on like, how do you actually protect trans women? Like, what does that actually look like? And different organizations like Southerners on New Ground and Queer Detainee Empowerment Project and uh, Black and Pink were all part of this conversation and talking about what they're actively doing right now um, and what, what folks can be doing. And we also talked a little bit about history, queer and trans history. So it was a really beautiful conversation. Um, and in it, the, the Women's March actually commented and said, Thank you to all the folks who have called us in and pushed us to be part of a stronger and more loving and fiercer feminist movement. Today we state that if your feminism doesn't include trans, trans women and femmes and non-binary folks, we do not want it. Um, and I thought that, the, and then they said, we are never done learning. Thank you to, thank you all for learning with us, for teaching us and for growing with us and for loving us. And I thought that that was really powerful. And like, I also saw a lot of pushback that they got for saying that on Twitter, just like all of the responses. So I think it was a really important move to make at this moment. Um, and so I guess my, my, my last question is just um, how can cisgender organizers um, continue to um, educate ourselves around um, what does it actually mean to commit ourselves to trans liberation? Um, what can we be doing? What more could we be reading um, to educate ourselves? Um, I really appreciate that question, and I think it's a larger question. I, th I think you know it's not something that I would pretend to have the mm -hmm. answer to, mm -hmm. um, but I will say that I think a lot of our organizing right now is kind of base level in terms of how it supports and welcomes trans people. You know, people do pronouns at the beginning of meetings. Mm -hmm. People change the signs on the bathrooms to gender neutral, and these are great things. There's okay. nothing wrong with doing those things, mm -hmm. but I think it's also like you know, putting a poster of Malcolm X up on your wall and being like, okay, this is a black welcoming space now. <laughs> it's like, no, you know it takes more than that to make black people feel at home mm -hmm. in a space that wasn't made for them. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of what's missing from current organizing to make it trans-affirming is, A, I think we need to talk more about there being trans-specific spaces and how are cis people actually supporting trans people in doing their own work um, and creating their own spaces because that's so hard um, for, for so many trans people to do, especially given the extreme dearth of resources in trans communities. So I think the first question should be how do uh, cis people get resources to trans people to do their own organizing? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So that th these are questions that trans people can actually answer for themselves. Mm -hmm. But in addition to that, I would say understanding the really complicated uh, intersections that trans people exist at in ways that other people don't. You know, I think all of our all of our communities we know have mental health struggles. All of our communities have people in them with housing instability or who are homeless. But when you're talking about the trans community, those things are so much exponentially higher that I think a lot of making spaces trans welcoming is just general questions about accessibility. Like, can people be a part of your group 
if they can't afford transportation to get there? You know, how do you how do you keep people um, involved in your organization if they have real physical or financial limitations to just being in the space or you know being present on a regular basis? Is your group have a clear stance on sex work and the decriminalization of sex work? Um, and do sex workers feel welcome and supported in your space? Because that's huge for making trans people feel seen and valued and human. Um, ha, you know, has your organization made a public statement about where it stands on the decriminalization of sex work? Do you provide resources for folks who are uh, maybe coming to meetings hungry or, you know, have other trauma that they're bringing into the space that other folks might not? And sort of if someone's coming in, in a day when they're really escalated because somebody just harassed them on the train, you know, how do you support someone coming into your space escalated um, because they might have just survived an attack? that other folks who took the train there might not have had to um, come up with, uh, come up against. So I think the, the deeper and the more real questions about making spaces trans accessible are really just about making them accessible mm -hmm. um, and asking real questions about disability, mental health, homelessness, and you know, are those folks in general able to, to be present and, and have a real lifeline into organizing and activist spaces mm -hmm. because so many folks in those communities are trans. Mm -hmm. So I think, not surprisingly, it requires some intersectionality <laughs> and understanding that trans people, nine times out of 10, their gender identity is not the only oppression that they're facing. And making our spaces accessible to trans people means making them accessible to all these other identities and, and making sure that they're addressing all these other systemic barriers mm -hmm. to, to organizing mm -hmm. and to activism. Cool. So we like to end on a note of sharing a favorite passage or quote from the book. Do you have anything in mind? Let's just read the description of Compton's cafeteria riot. Okay. It's just so satisfying. A surly police officer, accustomed to manhandling Com Compton's clientele with impunity, grabbed the arm of one of the queens and tried to drag her away. She unexpectedly threw her coffee in his face, however, and a melee erupted. Plates, trays, cups, and silverware flew through the air at the startled police officers, who ran outside and called for backup. Compton's customers turned over the tables and smashed the plate glass windows, and then poured out of the restaurant into the streets. The paddy wagons arrived and street fighting broke out in Compton's vicinity all around the corner of Turk and Taylor. Drag queens beat up police with their heavy purses and kicked them with their high-heeled shoes. Yes. A police car was vandalized, a newspaper stand was burned to the ground, and in the words of the best available source on what happened that night, a retrospective account by gay liberation activist, Reverend Raymond Brushiers, published in the program of San Francisco's first gay pride march in 1972, general havoc was raised in the Tenderloin. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Lit Review. You can donate to the BTGNC Collective at paypal.me slash bravespacealliance. Check out our website for that link, as well as to see additional book recommendations from Benji. I'm one of your hosts, Paige May. Tune in next week at thelitreview.org. Keep reading. <laughs>